Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Surprise Mechanics, uh, the first ever video games podcast hosted by me. Uh, my name is Roman Butel, and I'm joined in this and all things by my dear friend, producer Mike. Mike, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Great job. Just to do a little bit of table setting, uh, Mike and I are not journalists. We have our careers in video production, but more importantly, we're lifelong gamers with a capital G. And we noticed when it comes to video game discourse, there's a lot of great journalism happening in the field, but the individual outlets those journalists work for don't tend to include the very same business practices they might be critical of in their review. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, there could, it could be as simple as the uh, outlets wanting to protect their industry access, or maybe there's this uh, perception that readers or gamers, what have you, want to separate the business from the art. So we want to make it clear that we don't blame individual journalists for that. But uh, the point we want to try to make is that these practices that the uh, developers and publishers in the video game industry are engaging with and in uh, do directly result in certain output in their games. Meaning you, you can't really separate the two. Um, Mike, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think so. There's, um, there, there, there's kind of like a, a, a push and pull aspect to it. Yes. Uh, and so, again, we are not journalists, so we're not going to be making any like unsubstantiated claims or just trying to like make baseless allegations or anything like that. We're going to rely on the work the real adults in the room are doing as well as things that can be like proven in the end result, uh, meaning you can see it in the game. So, all that being said, uh, today we are going to be talking about Final Fantasy VII Remake, which was the game that made us want to do this, uh, if that tells you a little bit about what we thought of it. It's a special occasion. <laughs> Definitely. So, we have joining us today our friend Caleb Grine. Hello from the Glass City, as seen in AP Bio Season 3, now streaming, only on Peacock. Yes, he uh, he is not paid, just a fan. Thank you very much, Caleb. I, I, I'm a fan of surprise mechanics. Yes, uh, well, we are too, we hope. Um, so, Caleb, you also, would you say you're a lifelong gamer? Have you always gamed? I've, I've been playing for little, well, I've been playing non-goodwill games for a little over 15 years, and JRPGs for probably about half that time. When you say non-goodwill, what does that mean? I mean uh, games that are not educational computer graphic adventures. Oh, okay. Did you play a lot of those? For the first 10 years of my life, roughly. Okay. Yes. I do have like a stint of, uh, you know, educational games in the computer lab growing up in grade school. Exactly. Did you play Mario Typing? I wish. I did not. Oh, man. That's the only one I really remember. Probably because it was Mario. <laughs> uh, but I remember... Playing that in elementary school, and we were all really bad at it, right? Because we're like second or third grade and can't type like at all. And then I remember my teacher playing it and her being so good at it and just being like uh, really impressed at how much of a gamer she was because she was excelling at Mario teaches typing. The truly the original gamer girl. <laughs> yes, exactly. I don't remember her name or else I'd give her a shout out. But that's really the only educational game I think I ever got into. Did you benefit from it? Do you type oh, properly? No. Okay. Well, I, I think I do now just from growing up on the internet. But like I said, I was really bad at the game. And like, I remember it being, being difficult. I don't know how true that actually is. You know, maybe I could go play it now and it'd be incredibly easy as most of those like, you know, games you tried to play as kids now playing as an adult man are. 
Uh, but I don't think I really learned from it because it was just the barrier to, of entry was so high. Well, I'm sure I, it won't I, be like Mario Odyssey Dark Side of the Moon hard. Yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if they remastered that for Switch, though? Like for the Mario 35th anniversary, the next Nintendo Direct, and we're like, that's right, Mario teaches typing, coming to the Switch. That'd be a bold decision, but I'd be behind Remastered it. Mario Head is the stuff of my dreams are made of. <laughs> There's like a, a Nintendo Labo keyboard they sell with it that you have to make, and you have to like cut out every key. It takes oh, hours. You're giving them good ideas. Yeah, this is free. Oh, also, I want to mention here real quick, full spoilers ahead for this game and in general i think any game we talk about on the show this game has been out now several months so uh you know if if you haven't played it yet and don't want spoilers for final fantasy 7r uh don't listen yet all right so caleb thanks again for joining let's get into final fantasy 7 remake with the first segment we call the suite and here in the suite what we're going to do is talk about things we liked about the game I'll get the ball rolling, and I'll just say, generally, the combat. It's extremely good. All four playable characters are such a joy to play as. That's important. Yeah, uh, they all feel different. Um, they're all fun. I think the ATB meter feels like the closest, I guess, hybrid of like the turn-based strategy combat to action RPG real-time system. Definitely. I think it's really smart. Uh, and then I think on top of that, the stagger mechanic adds like another layer of strategy. So it's not just like a button masher uh, a la Kingdom Hearts. You know, I, I, <laughs> I have a soft spot for the early Kingdom Hearts games, but you really can just kind of mash X and get through most of them. Yeah, it's, it's an astonishingly effective medley of ideas that do not work as well on their own. And, and I, would, I, I think that like the combat in the game also is like, that was a, a constant question in the back of my head because we're going from this turn-based random encounter system to uh, this brand new high fidelity world. How is it going to happen? Is it going to be random encounters again? And if it's not turn-based, how does it work? And I think they pulled off a pretty good combination where, like you said, it's not quite like old school Kingdom Hearts. There is a little bit more strategy to it. But then on the other hand, it's also really difficult to lose yourself in boredom in the combat, I think. I always felt pretty engaged by it. And if I ever felt like uh, something was dragging on too long, I could just switch to another character and suddenly it's that much more different again. Right. And, yeah. and because of the way the ATB meter works, you really do have to switch characters because the, yes. the ATB meter will build over time if even if you're not controlling another character but the quickest way to get it built up is to take control of that person yourself and uh you know attack or do whatever and build up the meter i also think like you mentioned caleb the all the characters feel so good and they feel so different the game does such a good job giving you building blocks where you start with cloud and cloud really is going to be like the bread and butter of the combat but then once you unlock barrett and tifa and Aerith especially uh and you start getting like other classes like Aerith is truly a, a support class through and through uh, you really get a lot of different options for strategy as far as gameplay combat goes. And it not just not just the ATV, but also the fact that the AI doesn't do much if you don't command those characters encourages you a lot to mess around with them. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I found that like in the beginning quarter of the game, I well, even after unlocking some of the other characters, I reluctantly 
stuck with cloud at the start, but then advancing forward, I'd find that some of the more difficult encounters, some of the bosses, especially by the time I hit hell house, yeah. uh, I, I had to use, uh, my other characters, especially, uh, Aerith as a support. Cause mm-hmm. there just, there was no way to leave somebody on the playing field to the AI. It really wants you to play with all of the characters and, and see what they have to offer. And like, surprisingly, there's a lot there. Yes, and actually, it's it's funny you mentioned Hellhouse because um, that was a really tough fight. And Hellhouse is there's uh, the game does it a few different times where that is just a, a base enemy in the original game. It's just a random encounter, uh, a house. <laughs> and in this game, it they present it as a as a boss fight. Um, and they do that a few different times near the end of the game. They do it with the big uh, fish guy. I forget what he's called. Um, it's in Hojo's lab, which we'll definitely be talking about later. But uh, I thought that was really clever, a really good way to bring in some of these encounters that really don't make sense. Uh, And especially in this game that has like, it seems like they're striving for just like a little bit more realism within the realm of Final Fantasy, of course, uh, where it just would not have made sense to like walk through the slums and start fighting a house. Uh, But bringing it in as a boss battle in that arena, I thought was really smart. And that's, well, Seven is kind of... That that was the first Final Fantasy that attempted anything like a modern setting, right? So it kind of fits in that sense. It's such a minor gripe. I don't even want to save it for the back half of the show. But honestly, as far as combat goes, my only complaint was uh, how they handled the summons. I thought like having it be tied to very specific boss encounters was a little limiting. And I almost would have just rather them not put them in, I think. Uh, or just make them tied to the AP, ATB meter in such a way where it wouldn't make sense for me to summon them. Uh, for just a, a basic enemy uh, but besides that i thought the the combat is really i think like you said mike it, it's what kept me thoroughly invested it's it's extremely good and i think the combat as well as uh just seeing a fully realized midgar uh it makes this game worth playing if you are even in any way a fan of final fantasy 7 even if you're not like a mega fan but you've played it and liked it uh being able to run around the slums and like look up and see the plate above you was was like never got old yeah there's like a just going from playing that original um and i did it in the opposite i played the remake and then i i went back and i played the original game and the, but you the, played the original before i had played it before right and and just knowing especially anticipating for like several years knowing that square had been working on a remake of seven and thinking okay well how is this gonna play out like you're going to take this beloved classic and is it going to be one-to-one are you going to do it with real-time combat or turn-based like how how is that going to work and then like going back to encounters like hell house those little things they just did like a real nice like icing on top of the cake touch with it Mm. um as far as like bringing something like hell house back but still like you said wanting to put a little bit more grounded realism in that universe but also Hell House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and then and then with that, this this combat system, like they've definitely learned a lot of things over the years from uh, like Final Fantasy 13, uh, its sequels, and then Kingdom Hearts and those combat systems. So it was kind of like a mishmash of some of the best of all that. Um and it really kind of turned into something that, you know, I I can I can see 
those little pieces from Kingdom Hearts and 13, but it feels really fresh and new. And then um, that contrast between the original and, and this remake, you can really feel like these are two different games. Um, they they stand apart pretty well off of just the combat alone. And I think both have their place in gaming history because of that. Yeah. And uh, Hell House, again, really lives up to its name in this one. Like that is, I don't think we'd overstated. That was a tough it, fight. It is hell. It's, it is it hell. sucks. It's funny. I actually, uh, <laughs> um, I was playing that fight and I was kind of, you know, getting my ass kicked a little bit, but I kept laughing because I would like, in those moments of getting really angry and frustrated and like kind of, you know, white knuckle gripping the controller, I just remembered what I'm doing and I would just start <laughs> laughing. Like I'm just beating up a house that is now spitting fire at me or flying around or whatever. I, we're going to, we're going to get to like the, the, what, what made us feel sour about the game, but like just, just, you know, prelude to that. It's kind of incredible that with all of the different enemy designs that came out in this game back in 97, um, I mean, 97, this game was groundbreaking and in 2020, it's remake. I don't know if I'd call it groundbreaking, but they did a really good job of capturing the kind of like soul that all of these uh, enemies in the game had, and and just the the setting and the the mindset of a lot of the characters. There's quite like I, I, one of the big fears for a remake is will it. Will will it live up to the original? And I think that translates more into will it kind of give me the the feelings and emotions that I had when I played the original? And and they they did a really good job with a lot of it in that regard. I think. So Caleb, you played the original, correct? Yes. Although when I did, I didn't particularly appreciate what was so special about it because, uh, well, as I said before, at the time I was not playing I, anything other than some like cheap jewel case games. And by the time I did get around to Final Fantasy VII, by the time I knew it existed, it was already, it had already aged a yeah. lot. <laughs> yeah. How old were you when you played it? Couldn't tell you. Um, or alternatively, I mean, how old was it? Yeah. How old how old was it? Yeah. Um probably between 10 and 15 years old. Okay. That's an interesting place cuz like <laughs> 10 15 years after a game, it I mean in in many cases it's kind of forgotten completely. Yeah. yeah. So I actually played Final Fantasy 7 original for the first time last year. Oh. Uh when it came to Switch. So it's it's you know uh October 2020 right now when we record this. So I played it in spring of 2019. Uh, but I, I, my older brother played it growing up, and I remember watching him play it and having moments like, you know, Aerith's very famous death scene and stuff stick with me. Like, even just as like a sort of a backseat gamer watching it happen, because I just, I had, even then, had never seen anything like it, and I wasn't even playing it. But playing it for myself, uh, I was impressed with how well it held up. Like, I definitely understood why it has sort of cemented its place in the canon, because it's sure. always kind of tough to review old games with like your current uh like expectations right and like what you, what you, you know end up having a lot of a lot of things like auto save and yes uh so many tips on the screen that yeah go back going back to an old game is like uncovering some ancient piece of technology from a long bygone forgotten era 
Right. And I would say I think the ports do a pretty good job of modernizing them. The times mm -hmm. three speed thing. Um, yeah, I was going to say when you when you said you played it this last year uh, in 2020, you you had that advantage of oh yeah of, of like cheats built into the game where um, I imagine Caleb when when you played it probably five years prior, I think I played it for the first time around 2007. So even then, you know, it had aged fairly, but you didn't have three x speed and skipping random encounters that was like doing the what what the, the breadth of that game had to offer required a lot of time to invest but when you're a teenager that's pretty easy to offer up I, I beat the game in a cool 20 hours which is <laughs> crazy yeah. yeah for any final fantasy yeah like you, it, you, you got some good use of that 3x speed for sure oh absolutely i turned it off in like cutscenes, but yeah like running through the open world i was like let's just get this over with. can you have it on in cutscenes? Um, well, not like the pre-rendered cutscenes, but I'm, when I say cutscene, oh, I even mean just like sure. when I was talking to someone. Um, sure. I would like kind of turn it off and actually take my time with the dialogue. If I had played it last year, I, I would have definitely thought it was a lot more interesting than than at the particular time that I went to it. But I'm going to shill Super Eyepatch Wolf on YouTube. He has a video, I think it's called Final Fantasy VII, the game that changed a generation. That opened my eyes to what was special about it. So if you don't understand what's cool about Final Fantasy VII, go check that out. I suppose you could you could argue um, just as like there's a the, the the saying Seinfeld isn't funny because of all of yeah. the uh, sitcom humor that has come and gone in the decades since Seinfeld that you know Final Fantasy VII is no longer groundbreaking um, in in like a similar idea yeah well and, and so for me playing it with like a modern lens uh i was actually really impressed with the characterization because i i think like uh, again uh part of the reason i understood why it cemented its place in the video game canon was sephiroth was a pretty compelling enemy because he was a good mix of he actually had a plan he actually had an agenda he wanted to accomplish and then there's also like fun tyrannical ramblings uh like you expect from you know a piece of fantasy uh which we can talk about more later <laughs> if we think Final <laughs> Fantasy VII Remake uh, did that right. But we're not talking about Final Fantasy VII Original, guys. We're talking about the remake. So another thing I liked about it, unless you guys, do you guys have anything you want to say about Final Fantasy VII Original again? No, I, I, I think just a little bit of context on it was, was nice. Okay, good. Yeah. Another thing I really liked about Remake was the increased avalanche presence. I thought it was kind of cool how they explain that this is a uh, essentially a terrorist cell, but they are just that, a cell. There's many other avalanche groups. There isn't like a huge amount of internal communication, at least between this particular group we're following, led by Barrett, and the other group. Yeah, there's a, a, a really nice level of increased detail in the storytelling and the characterization of the remake. You know, I know we just made an made an effort to move on from talking about the original but i think that's the thing that keeps the original so hip and fresh uh 23 years later was it 23 yeah um maybe 17 better math um <laughs> but what keeps it hip and fresh so many years later is the characters the story um those types of like things that really don't age whereas game mechanics and coding all that does age with time 
Um, and in the remake, it is very more, very much more detailed. Uh, it, it's a lot more grounded, and there's uh, there, it really does highlight a lot of the social commentary that the game made back in '97, and how pertinent it still is today in 2020. Uh, which I find that as like a huge plus that Square not only took these iconic characters, this incredible setting, but they turned it up to 11, so to speak. And now there's uh, what, what kind of feels like the start of the game is akin to the opening season of a, a, an ongoing TV show uh, with regard to its narrative. And that world is just one that I'm actively uh interested in that kind of setting for that story yeah i want to come i just want to come back to that because that's a point you've made to me off mic before about how this feels like a uh, the first season of the final fantasy 7 tv show and i want to i want to talk about that more in the back half of the show because i think there's some things it does really well caleb did you have any thoughts on that the avalanche stuff rebellious factions like that are often more of a pervading idea than a group which is uh, perfectly relevant right now and i think relevant in in most time time periods most cultures so for avalanche to be to be an an ideology that a lot of people are in on definitely makes more sense to me yeah yeah, and I, I like this idea, too, that they are, because they are essentially, I mean, well, not essentially, they are guerrilla fighters. So the fact that they don't have uh, as good of communication as their enemy, you know, Shinra, you know, it's a streamlined corporation. They, from the top down, it feels like they have their marching orders and they follow them, whereas Avalanche, uh, th this game makes it very clear that our core group of heroes are sort of a fringe group of Avalanche. They don't, uh, f for reasons that happened off screen before we even got there as the players. Uh, they're not talking to them. They're almost like excommunicated. Uh, and I thought that was just really cool as like you got kind of drip fed that information in the first. And half they could the even they could even claim to not be Avalanche, but they'd still get labeled as Avalanche in that mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, they have that. They, there is that level where there is more to Avalanche than what you originally saw. But everything still un unfolds in the sim like in the same way where Cloud is kind of like a, a catalyst, in a way, for everything to start. He meets Avalanche, everything begins to unfold the way it does. Mm -hmm. So even though there's this like larger sect of Avalanche uh, activists, it's still that like small group with Barrett and Cloud joining them reluctantly that sets everything in motion and gives you that roller coaster. Yes. And something I think the game, both games have actually done well is um, they don't shy away from the fact that Avalanche are terrorists. Uh, I actually think Seven Remake tries to walk it back a little bit, like at the beginning when the uh, Mako reactor blows and Jesse wasn't planning for it to blow as much. But in Final Fantasy VII OG, it's very clear, like you're doing terrorism. But the game, I think, kind of puts his foot down and says, yes, but look at your enemy. Like, you're sure you're doing terrorism, but so are they. And that's kind of the only way to, to beat this existential threat to the planet. And I actually thought that was pretty commendable for the game to pretty firmly put its foot down and say, there is a right and wrong here. And even the right way going to you're going to have to do violence, uh, especially really, in like today's. 
yeah, fairly yeah. radical in 97 to, exactly. to, start, to start with that. And I yeah. would even say it's radical now in like this age of like Ubisoft constantly putting out games that like copies political imagery, but then insists they're not political, right? So, and and I like I said, I think Remake walks it back a little bit, but there is like a pretty powerful scene after the reactor blows where you are forced to walk through the rubble and see these citizens that are essentially just collateral damage, this neighborhood that got blown up, and you have to kind of hear them go like, well, that was my home, this sucks now. Yeah, uh, and I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, like... I- the the additional details they added with that, um, like I I, fe- I feel like no matter what most of my criticisms of the game are, the remake kind of has this magnifying glass on a lot of what made the original so good, mm-hmm. and I think I think Square and and the people in charge of the development had a pretty decent finger on the pulse of what made the original as good as it was, um, at least somewhat narratively and with those characterizations mm. um, for better for better or worse they made the most out of turning midgar into a whole game yes yeah. I, well <laughs> I, I would say the only i, I wish we could have got to spend more time on the plate i would say they make the slums a full game yeah yeah and, and, and to your point too mike they do have a uh it's a lot of the same creative staff like because because final fantasy 7 remit or uh sorry final fantasy 7 came out what was it what year was it 97 97 so it's 23 years old. Am I doing that math right? I think it's seven. Uh, 20, uh, let me just get a calculator. Is I anyone mean, here good at math? Well, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I could have told you it was 23. I just didn't want to interrupt. Well, you, I wish you would have. <laughs> I think I said it was 23 earlier, and then I rolled that back and yeah. said 17. And... The important thing is we're all equally smart. Okay, everyone on the call <laughs> is good and smart. So 23 years ago is a pretty long time in in media right and like like a a movie or game that came out 23 years ago clearly is a little more dated now but it's not that long a time in like corporate world so a lot of these same guys are still there uh they're still at square enix and like the the producer of this game uh was the director of the last game and i should uh, point out they've been talking about doing a remake since 2001 well that's actually i didn't realize that so four years after it came out they were like do it again that and that's interesting because I know that like talk of the remake has been ongoing in the gaming community for a, a while. Um, that probably by the time that I played it for the first time, a few years after two thousand one, people were begging for a remake. They just wanted to see this story in high definition. I think, and the Advent Children film really also solidified like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if you could play this? but the original and I never knew that they were talking about a remake as far back as 2001. That's really incredible. It took, it took 19 years. When did the, um, now I'm curious, when did the PS2 come out? The PlayStation two, I think 2000. Yeah. So maybe that's why, because that, that jump in hardware was pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're You're right. So, so they, they probably were like, well, what if we got it to look like that? And, and there we go. We, we solved it boys. Maybe, I don't know. Who knows? One of the last things I wanted to mention uh, going uh, in the suite is um, like I kind of said earlier that the the first half of the game, I think, does a lot of things pretty well. Uh, And I think like the a lot of the expanded stuff with the Avalanche crew with Jesse, Biggs and Wedge was was pretty good. And and I liked it, honestly. Uh, And it all comes to a head with the wall market section, which I think for me was a particular high point in the game. Um, I loved wall market. I think the entire game is worth playing. 
just for chapter nine. I agree. I really do. I think I think if you can stick through chapter nine, I, I would understand if someone fell off after chapter nine, to be honest. But chapter nine is so good. Uh, and I was a little nervous for it because I was nervous how they were going to handle the uh, honeybee in cloud stuff. <laughs> but it is so amazingly tasteful, like truly <laughs> like it's it's remarkably well done. There's a, a I forget. Uh, Andreas, is that the guy's name? Yeah. Uh, An- Andrea Romano. Andrea Romano. Thank there you. you. Uh, he, he has a line to cloud where he just says something like uh, beauty is a notion not tied to any gender. And I was like, wow, yes. that's amazing. Like, I did not expect gender fluidity to be done at all in this game, to be honest. I just didn't think they would. Uh, I thought I, I didn't know how they were going to handle the cloud and address bit. Um, but I thought they were just going to maybe hand wave it away and just sort of be like, whatever. You you guys know how this works. You've played the original. It's kind of incredible that like w- w- with regard to the combat earlier and the whole world of the game, not knowing how this translates from 97 to a remake and today's technology. I think there's that same uncertainty with that kind of material. Cause like you go back in time and you watch a movie, play a game and there might be some, uh, pretty raunchy content and, you know, typical response would be like, Oh, well you could do that back then. Or it was a different time. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right with like with, with this remake, they handled, this whole gender fluidity thing with uh, with great nuance where it's you know it, there isn't like a right or wrong in in the game um but it also it, it's just kind of i guess for a lack of a better word progressive um it, it yeah. makes for a really fun and charming chapter in the story and throughout the whole game all that like that those tonal shifts from the opening with the Mako reactor exploding to wall market and this like crazy fun filled uh, den of uh, criminals and the honeybee in and the whole cross-dressing thing is like all the way through. It's just kind of hard not to have a smile on your face playing this game. Right. And, um, I, I like you you said it, it felt, you know, progressive in a way. And I think why that is, is because the game just, uh, it doesn't dwell on it. Like I said, there's just that line, okay. beauty is not tied to any specific gender. It is just a notion, and what you are now is beautiful. Um, now, you know, I could imagine maybe you could kind of critique that and say like, okay, well, he did, you know, they were still putting cloud in a dress, so there was like clearly a, a, a idea there of what beauty should be, and that idea is feminine, maybe. But the game, I think, does the best it can. I, I could imagine somebody coming across that chapter in the remake. You know, say they've never ex- like they, they could be younger, they've never experienced the original game, or maybe they had. But having, you know, the story where your hero isn't. Um, isn't John Rambo, isn't uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger type body or build. And they go through um, this this quest that involves this. I don't know, that could be affirming for somebody, you know, sure. in, in, in their personality or who they are. Um, and And that makes the whole experience, I think, really powerful for... Um, you know, like again, like it's it's a it's a force of good rather than really coming out and saying that you know this is how people should be or that's how people should be. 
It's just, you know, you are what you are and what you are is beautiful. And it's a matter of highlighting vulnerabilities in characters, which this does, which which I think was part of the, the appeal of the original because they they all had a lot of personality, ups and downs, and that was emphasized for all of them here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there was like, I mean, each character has a roller coaster of their own. And each chapter of the game has like those ups and downs to to ride along with them. And you're absolutely right. You do get to see like the best and the worst of each character and really how they grow from that. And and I think that's where like the future installments of this remake, there are plot points from the original that I'm really curious to see play out um, because everything has had a lot more detail built into it. Um, even if it is just, you know, a passing line to say that, beauty is beauty um that additional detail really goes thousands of miles and what i think is a good direction for the story and the characters and in general a game for people to enjoy that i that that's something that again like makes the whole experience that much more fun i think you've got characters that aren't totally perfect they aren't your typical like Hollywood heroes or anti-heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they have a lot of believability despite, you know, crazy hair or crazy clothing designs or like carrying a sword that's their, their, their equivalent of their body height. You know, <laughs> they feel very real because of their flaws, because of their, you, you very much visibly see growth in them. Even in the course of this remake, I know like a lot of people were concerned it's just Midgar. Midgar only has so many plot points and the whole narrative that is Final Fantasy VII. But even in that uh, short window of time, all of these characters that you are along on the ride for have uh, really good moments of characterization and really excellent moments where they learn and they grow and they're all put out of their comfort zone and uh, gosh, they just feel so real. It's so much fun spending time with those characters while you play the game. Yeah. I, I think uh, Barrett actually benefits the most from this. Um, I mm-hmm. think they do a pretty good job with uh, giving Barrett a little more nuance to work with while also having him show a lot of growth and his transition from not liking Cloud to inevitably liking Cloud a lot, which we, of course, know has to happen, even if you haven't played the original game. That's just, it, you know, it, it's it's following storytelling steps, right? Uh, I thought that was pretty good and believable. And I actually thought Barrett, they did a lot better of a job in this one of showing how he is a charismatic leader instead of uh, kind of oafish like he was in the first game, I thought. But he's still kind of oafish. They balance sure, it a little better. Yes. Of course, they yes. balance it a little better. And, yes. and, that, and that's where, like, I'm really curious when I mentioned uh, what like the future installments of the remake will hold. The first thing that came to mind for me was uh, Corel and the prison, that whole uh, subplot with Barrett and his past. You know, how w- what are we going to see there? Because there's so many moments that each character gets to experience in the game where they face their fears, they face their flaws, they overcome. And the whole party helps them through that. I think one of the other beautiful things about that original game uh, is that you know if if you were you know a kid alone playing a video game in 97 and you popped that one in your PlayStation then you had kind of like a group of friends in your party 
that were supporting you and helping you along. And that, you know, kind of gave a lot of people probably the framework they have for the friend group that they ended up uh, becoming a part of later in life. Yeah. And I also want to give Remake credit for giving them some room to still grow a little more. Unlike, say, Mm -hmm. the first Hobbit movie, which gave Bilbo and Thorin a whole arc in that movie, and then they had nothing left to do for the next two movies. That's not (laughs) the case here. No, you're right. There definitely is still a lot to be done. Uh, like, I mean, I, I would even say I feel like certain like I feel like uh, as much as I love Tifa and she was actually my favorite person to play as I'm trying to think of where she really went narratively in this game. And I'm struggling. So that like just to give an example, that's something that I would think, you know, there's certain certainly room uh, to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, it, it's possible that Tifa is like, big story moments are yet to come um mostly at preserving that mystery behind cloud um did that sound really weird when i said cloud because i also kind of like did that as i said it oh uh, it sounded like you got like struck by lightning yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh well uh i think we should move on for time caleb did you have anything you wanted to add to the suite i'm just uh, as far as that last point i'm just I was I think what I was most impressed by was how fluidly the characters were handled because other modern Final Fantasy games were not as impressive in that regard I thought which which shows that there was benefit to bringing back the same creative team. Sure. Yeah, I think that those people probably know those characters the best out of anybody i mean after all they created and wrote them um but i i also agree with you like some of the more recent final fantasy games seem to struggle to find their foothold with characterization they're they're Um, awkward and this this game did not feel awkward to me i agree yeah like like i've played a little bit of 13 and i've played a few of the other uh games following seven and there's a lot of them that feel like they really wanted to like find a new character, but they capture the same magic that Cloud as a protagonist had, but never really were able to to do that. Um, so, and in, in, in regard to like some of those newer games too, you're right; they do feel awkward and like really strangely paced. Um, so, it it is nice to see that going back to Final Fantasy VII, it may, maybe it's a case of like. I don't know, a flash in the pan, these people, these characters were like magic at the time. Um, and somehow we still preserve that magic in 2020. Um, but maybe it's just more that between now and then, different people coming in and out of the company. Um, I don't know, maybe it was just difficult to to live up to the expectations that Seven had coming along with it over all these years. Sure. It definitely has something to do with that, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to the second segment, The Sour. So here, what we do is we are going to talk about the stuff that we maybe didn't like as much in the game. Um, So I will go first, and I'll just throw a low ball. Uh, I thought maybe the party was broken up a little bit too much. Uh, Really, it's not until the last uh, two chapters of the game you are all together as a unit, and even then you still can't really... uh, customize your party that much there isn't much of a system to because because so in case anyone's not familiar at this in this game your party is three people 
uh, but there are four total playable characters, like we've said. Um, and I don't remember a point where you ever actually had all four at your disposal and you got to choose which three you ran with. There are uh, chapter 17 and 18, you have all four people, but it the game kind of tells you exactly who you're using at what point. Um, which especially sucked in chapter 17, because uh, I, I, I struggled for a bit in those moments where it was uh, Tifa and Aerith were paired off, and then Cloud and Barrett were over here. Uh, Cloud and Barrett I had no problem with, but Tifa and Aerith, it, it was tough. Yeah, I think, um, like, the, the whole idea of um, the party in this game is a unique one, because the, the narrative really decides for you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of how the original game was, too, at this point in the story. So, like, transitioning from 97 to 2020, it doesn't feel as weird, but because Midgar is now a 20 to 40 hour game in of itself, it seems like there should be more opportunity to play some of these other characters or just have a little bit more agency in creating your party and exactly. approaching, you know, all those challenges that the game has for you in your own way that doesn't give you too many options yeah and 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 i I agree with you later on in the game it kind of like pads itself out a bit to the point where forcing both having like a section of the game that feels like padding and then also forcing parties to be split and switching back and forth between that split is a little taxing i think it probably made more sense before it became a full game I agree, because I think um, it's a lot more forgiving when that is the first three hours of your game. Uh, the first three hours of your, you know, maybe 40-plus hour game, uh, unless you're playing with time three speed. But in this game, we've been playing it for, you know, you're playing for maybe over 30 hours at that point. You have a pretty good understanding of the mechanics of the game, and then you still aren't able to fully play with all the toys you've been given. And I don't know that, like I said, that's a relatively minor gripe I had, but it was just something I wanted to mention. Yeah, I think the game could definitely benefit from having the, the, the like just the ability to have more customization in how you approach. You know, the core gameplay is probably that combat, right? Aside from advancing the story, so giving the player more agency in that regard to their party, how their build is set up. Um, really solidifies the game as an RPG, and then uh, I think that would add so many, so many more layers of fun if you could go back to previous chapters and then just be able to pick your party. Um, granted, you know there 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 are the story parts that you have to navigate through that dictate you can't have Aerith yet, or mm-hmm. you know you can't have these people because they're all separate in different places. Um, but it kind of seemed like a weird thing for the game to do later on, like near the end of the game when the party is being split up and you, you don't really have any decisions to be made over your your setup in that regard. Um, not only is that like it, it's kind of like watching a cutscene in the game do all the cool, fun things that you want to do in the game, but you can't because the cutscene's doing it for you. Mm-hmm. And then it's happening so late in the game, like you said, you know how it works. You just want to, you know, give me the keys to the car and let me drive. Yeah. And for this game, I think to really stand on its own two legs, you know, it doesn't stand with the support of Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two. Um, you kind of need that. 
you kind of need that moment where now it is my playground and now I get to decide how all of this is going to work and come together um, and make your experimentation happen. I think Final Fantasy XII did a good job of that with the Gambit system. It was kind of like a unique way that you could control everybody in your party and uh, set up the game however you wanted to do it based on kind of like programming a computer in a way. And there's a lot of freedom in that. Um, the, the the biggest thing that kind of sucks is you really won't know what like the full experience of this remake will be until part two, because then you'll have a lot more agency over your party. Like we said at the top of the show, this was the game that made Mike and myself want to do this because we both agree that it just really kind of sucks. They broke this thing into episodic installments and I, I understand the general consensus to not dwell on that too much because it is what it is, right? But I think it's fair to still critique the game for it because specifically as it come as it relates to gameplay and story, I think the episodic release structure really was a detriment to the pacing of the narrative. There were two specific moments I can distinctly remember where the game really drags. And for both of them, they are saved because uh, the game just pulls a plot point almost exactly from Final Fantasy VII original, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right, the story can be really good. And the two areas those were, for me, were the train yard sequence, where you are with, uh, it's Cloud, Aerith, and Tifa, and you're fighting all those ghosts. Not the plot ghosts, which we'll get into later, because I know Mike has some thoughts, yeah. uh, but just the the like the booze, if you will. Um, that sequence went from being cool and, and atmospheric and spooky, uh, it's, you know, I, I'm a sucker for Halloween time and spooky scary, but then it just got so stupid and it dragged on so long that I thought about kind of, that was the first time I thought I might not beat this game. <laughs> like I was just kind of like, I might put this thing down, but then immediately after that, the plate falls and that sequence is handled very well. And it's a very cool chapter. Yeah. Pacing wise, it's a really strange decision. I think it, it really takes everything that's like high octane roller coaster, And then it really slows it down. Yes. Um, and What's really interesting is the original game, the train yard is like a single screen. It's just like this really quick passing moment. You move one train out of the way and then you're back in sector seven. So I, I they turned it into this whole thing with like, I, I think it was like a, a solid hour or two of running around a dead train yard. Yep. And um, in, in my typical gameplay fashion i like to search every nook and cranny so there's probably more time spent but there really isn't that much there it just it, it just felt like it was drawn out more and caleb i'd be curious to hear what you thought of it um in regards to that because it's like the combat in the game is really good but it just didn't feel like there was that much driving force during that moment in the game until you get to the whole plate dropping um and I felt like in that 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 train yard, it was like everything else just kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, there's really no. Uh, I, I do want to hear Caleb's thoughts on it, but just piggybacking off that real quick, there the reason it's so frustrating is there's no uh, real narrative ramifications of the train yard. It is a strange one-off that felt very padded for time because the resolution of that specific conflict is so self-contained and doesn't really uh, play into the overall narrative at all, except for the fact that like Cloud was late for the plate dropping. 
for evidence sake, for springboarding's sake, the other times that I can recall are uh, the definitely the train yard, uh, but also chapter seventeen, Hojo's yes. lab. Oh god, yeah. yes. We're we're talking using, about Hojo's lab, my dude. Using <laughs> cranes to get to Wall Market. And oh the, yeah, the, the hand cranes and the, yep. the abandoned highway. Yeah. I totally forgot about. That. And you're right; that's another great example because, like we said, Wall Market is probably the best part of the game. So it's the sequence of the game. You're kind of like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> Follow right, up. Right. It's just, like, just like train yard before the plate falling. That that yeah. Uh, shift, but oh, and and anytime you're in the sewers. Oh yeah. Much. Oh, you mean uh, like a solid half the game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they water, did. They, they, they did. Water pressure. Ex- extend, <laughs> they extended the sewers quite a bit too, and that's the thing. Like, I I think that um, you 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 present so many more examples of the padded nature of some sections of the game, and I think I've like my my brain has forgotten those very deliberately because they're just not that exciting or exhilarating. Um, whereas they are often bookended by some pretty important moments in the plot so that, that are just pulled from final fantasy 7 yeah yeah <laughs> and roman just said that he forgot about the cranes right before wall market and you know why because they were followed by wall market yeah yeah and so market, yeah <laughs> I, I came away from the game loving it a lot a lot more in the moment than than I do o- overall now because now I actually remember the parts I didn't like as much and those were the parts I did not enjoy as much as the rest of it and it, it and it's also not as bothersome the first time I don't think since there's still a lot of intrigue in exploring and seeing what you're doing and especially if you don't have the or if you're not comparing it to the original game you might not know any different uh, it's only it only seems slow when you think about it, but replaying it though, it's why do I have to do this? That is <laughs> that that is absolutely true. I think you're on you you hit the nail right on the head, Caleb. Because um, in the moment, the first time, especially you, you kind of like even if you don't know Final Fantasy VII, you still have like up to those points where the padding begins. You've seen some pretty cool stuff. So um, now that you're in that moment where the devs probably thought, well, in order to make this a legitimate offering in 2020, we have to have so many playtime hours available and, you know, we have to have enough content for the player to enjoy. Translation. To make it a $60 game. Yeah, yes. but here, here's an idea for that. I, I just, just like, I'm kind of thinking outside the, the box here. Remake more than the first three hours of Final <laughs> Fantasy. You have a, a like a, a big game here. Re- give just do more of the game, because <laughs> because uh, uh the Yoshinari Katasi, he's the producer of this game and he was the director of Final Fantasy VII Original. He gave some sort of non-answer in the press release before the uh, leading up to this game, where it was like in order to make this work as a modern game, we had to cut back on some stuff and really flesh out certain areas of Midgar and blah blah blah. But that doesn't make sense because they are pulling from a very rich tapestry of source material that they could have easily just used more of instead of the first three hours. And in the more exploratory chapters, though, there's those side missions that I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I doubt everybody loves those, but I enjoyed them. So if you had more stuff with some kind of substance like that, that can help. 
if only if it just adds world building. The the side quests had some good pluses to them, and like yeah, I mean like like you said, they're probably not everybody's cup of tea, but uh, I think what makes them different is they're optional. Yes. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I opted to do all of them, and I had a good time. You know, some of them were probably a little tedious, but there were some that were really charming and really fun and worth the time. And I think, you know, if, if you put the effort spent into making the weird hand mechanic thing in the abandoned highway tunnel work and move and into a puzzle, then you could probably dedicate some of that time towards making some quality optional content um, in order to, you know, put a little bit more value add in your game as far as that playtime goes. Um, cause, cause it, it really is just like, you know, some, something cool is going to happen after this boring section, but thinking about going back and playing the game again, cause I've only played it once. And after I beat it, I decided not to play it again on hard. Uh, when, while I was playing the game up until the Shinra building, I thought I might come back and play this again on hard just cause it's just so much fun. I, I decided against it and thinking about going through that whole process through uh the train yard through the the hand puzzle thing through uh hoja's lab and it's like i just don't want to do that can i just fast forward please yeah so i want to talk about the lab a little bit if that's all right so uh like we've said many times now wall market i think we we agree is the best part of the game that's chapter nine i would say the second best part of the game is chapter 16 uh so if if anyone playing the game if you can get past the the some of the fodder between nine and sixteen. I think sixteen is worth it. Uh, and and uh, there are eighteen chapters total. And so chapter sixteen is when you finally storm the Shinra building and you have to get to the top to save Aerith. And uh, storytelling wise, it really worked for me because there's a uh, uh, sort of a pulse throughout the whole chapter. There's a sense of urgency. You have to get up there and you have to find Aerith before you get found out. And the building is so big and massive that uh, it it stands to reason these people with a gun for an arm and a giant sword could just be walking through, you know, to doing whatever it is they're doing. Imagine and, going in for your day job and then seeing big sword man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did, you know, I, I used to work out. at a, I used to work at a law firm in Chicago and I couldn't tell you how many times that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but so after that chapter, which again, really good, you, you rescue Aerith, there's a boss fight the game in chapter 17 just becomes this really weird like Saturday morning cartoon where Hojo traps you in his lab and he needs to watch you fight his monsters to collect data or whatever. And um, I'm generally okay with with uh, stories and media not taking themselves too seriously and, and sort of uh, poking fun at their own premise when appropriate. And so it's not the fact that this got really silly that is annoying to me. It's just the fact that it uh it's just such a grinding halt to the narrative because you save Aerith and now everyone is like, all right, let's get out of here. We do what we need to do, we gotta go. And then it's like they felt like they needed one more dungeon, which again, if you need more time, just make more of the game. The moment the catwalk collapsed, I thought, oh, oh no. Oh no. We're in in a literal pit. We're in a literal pit now. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Uh, I thought about stopping, but I looked at my playtime and I'd already put 30 hours in. I was like, no, I'm finishing. This yeah. Game. And, and it, it, it just like and it just keeps going. It just feels like it never ends. Like you go through this this whole like it is another dungeon and you're back to fighting enemies and that, you know, takes time and then flipping switches to build more catwalks and 
help each other get through because your party is all split up help each other get through hojo's lab together alive it just like they took this um like two minute loop and then repeated it so many times that by the time we were done with it i was like i i, I don't want anymore <laughs> i want to i want to go on to the ne- i want to go to calm already and just like get this game on which is really where the game should have ended and we'll talk about the ending but they should have just ended in calm like the train yard sequence there's really no narrative resolution to the Hojo's Lab. And and for the record, I don't know a single person who liked Hojo's Lab. Like even like reading other reviews and listening to people I don't know talk about the game, uh everyone kind of agrees that Hojo's Lab sucks. Uh and after Hojo's Lab, you have the sequence where uh you know, you you save the Shinra president who's hanging off the building and the game kills Barrett. But then and and that could have been interesting, right? Because that's new and that's different. Uh, but then the fate ghosts, which we haven't even talked about yet, Here undo they that. They're they're swooping in right so... now into the recording studio. Oh no! <laughs> so I'm gonna let you guys take the lead on the fate ghosts because I know Mike, you especially have some thoughts. I I have yes, Mike. Go go ahead. I have very very strong opinions about the fate ghosts and. Uh, for a little bit of context, throughout the game, from like the very beginning of the game, something seems like it's just a little off. Um, that opening cutscene where the camera pans out from Aerith to show the entirety of Midgar and then the title. Um, it, there, there, there's a moment in there where Aerith is like a little afraid of something and you can't see what it is. And later on, you find these like they're called whispers in the game i i think um but they yes, they've yeah. been given the nickname uh dementors because they look like the dementors from harry potter and they kind of act like it too but in in, in... except not even as cool and that's not a sentence i'll ever say when it comes to harry <laughs> potter much but they're not as cool as harry potter very good <laughs> um but yeah they, they they're, they're they're they are just that and their purpose in this game uh, is a mystery up until the very end. And th- at the very end in Hojo's lab, you meet Red 13. Aerith and Red 13 talk a little bit about them and give you kind of like the lowdown on what the whispers are. And it essentially boils down to um, at that point, you might realize that the only thing they do to service the story is they kind of force the characters to move in the direction of the original game's plot. And Red 13 and Aerith confirm that these ghosts are here to do nothing but make sure the plot of the original game happens. And you get to a lot of moments throughout, like Cloud not going on the, the second reactor mission with Barrett and the rest of Avalanche. Like, you get back from that first mission. And normally you go under the uh, under the bar with everybody and you start talking shop about the next Mako reactor. Well, that doesn't happen. Instead, the plot kind of moves in a different direction and it's very interesting for doing so. Um, you know, I, my, my thought on a remake isn't necessarily you have to copy everything one-to-one. It can move and be fluid in its own way. And hopefully it stands on its own legs, not on the legs of its predecessor. There are moments like that where these ghosts don't show up at all. Something is different. But then later on, they do show up, and then they kind of push you in a direction, and it's just really weird. The escaping from the church with Aerith 
you know, the ghosts force you in a certain path. There's like a piece of materia in a closet that you cannot get until you come back later because the ghosts don't want you to pick up the materia then. It's like, well, why bother? Um, but then, like you said, Barrett dies. One of the, like, I, I think Square really nailed the remake up until you reach the top floor of the Shinra building um, because they've built up, like in the original game, they built up this great mystery surrounding Sephiroth and then all of a sudden he has killed the president. I don't think it's a big deal that the president get, didn't get killed in the same way as the original game. But at that moment, you know, Sephiroth is real and alive and we have to find this dude. And that built a lot of tension for the game to come. In the remake, Sephiroth just straight up stabs Barrett, And the plot ghosts are like, nah, and bring him back to life. And it's a little insulting, I think, because the idea that the game has to follow the narrative of the original game, I, I, I don't agree with that. I also don't agree that the creators of the game have to call out anybody that is complaining that the game doesn't follow the original plot. And that's exactly what these whisper ghosts are, is some kind of manifestation in the game itself for the creators to you know wag their finger at longtime fans when they kind of get a hissy about, oh, you're changing things up on my, my favorite game. Like, I, yeah. I don't think there's a big deal with changing things, but it, it's just so weird that you would change something so drastically and then immediately walk it back like it never happened. Yeah. And then just kind of shove that in the audience's face like, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? We got these ghosts. Um, it's just very strange to me. And I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the whispers, Caleb, because to me, it, it just like it, it's the one thing that kind of separated what would have made Final Fantasy VII Remake an incredible experience and made it more of an okay one. I could have done without them throughout the entire plot. And I'm very hopeful that the future installments of this remake does not have them at all, just because. Whenever they show up, it was kind of annoying. And I always knew that, like, okay, something is going to be slightly different. You know, maybe Cloud has his hair move in a slightly different direction than it did in the original game. Yeah, and the ghosts are going to flip sh shit about it. <laughs> um, no, that's not right. And they come and, like, do his hair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's what it is. And yeah. it, it, it's so frustrating because... As someone who does love the original game, but like understands that like, okay, it's been 23 years, like not everything's going to be the same. You're going to want to explore new things. You're going to want to do some new things. You're going to want to probably modernize it a little bit, um, whatever that might mean. I, I, I think there's greater uh, results from making your changes and sticking to it, standing with it proudly than like, okay, well, here's a character manifestation of all the angry fans that are going to complain on the internet about how you know cloud didn't hold hands with tifa yeah so yeah caleb do you, what do you what, what are your thoughts on those ghosts first i'll say personally i didn't particularly care either way which is probably due largely to not being that passionate about the original so i didn't feel personally attacked and i don't know how much that has to do with 
whether I mind it or not. But what I can say, Mike is shaking with rage. I can see him. what what I can say objectively <laughs> is what I've noticed is media gets away with mocking its audience when it does so without a sense of self-importance. So, mm-hmm. in a game that otherwise knows when to not take itself too seriously, which is atypical for Final Fantasy, why is this particular matter suddenly being handled so pretentiously? Like, Why, why is this a serious part of it? I, I think it definitely has to do with the historic place this game has you know it, the 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 amount of people that out there that really do hold it dear clo- and close to them like and i would say that you know i'm even one of them i i i have a lot of love for the original game but i i also want to stress that i invite square enix to you know do their thing with the remake in regards to changing things up whenever i saw that change occur it was more intriguing to me than uh, the whispers themselves ever were because now I want to see where this goes. How does this unfold? When uh, when Cloud doesn't go down underneath 7th Heaven to have that briefing with Barrett for the next Mako Reactor mission, my thought was, how does this play out? You know, what does this mean for Cloud and our gang of friends? And for the rest of the Final Fantasy VII story, how does Barrett and Cloud become uh, close if they don't have this moment, right? Yeah. And then, and and there are no ghosts to prevent or to put that back on the rails that the original had. But then you take a big decision, like, or even something small like Cloud and Aerith running from the Turks and the and the church. Like, I don't need the ghosts to tell me what to do in that regard. I know, like, I got to run. And it lays out a pretty clear path on where to go. But then Barrett dying. Um, You've made a bold choice. Okay, so what happens? Commit to it. I I think that you're kind of right on the money there, too. With like, you know, if it were a lot more tongue-in-cheek, then maybe it would be a little bit more welcome. Which you've already suggested, like like moving Cloud's hair back in the other direction. You know, what if he started looking like he does in Advent Children and they just put his head back up? Yeah, they, they rip off his sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, can I, I want to chime in here real quick. I think it's fair to say this was meant, like you said, Mike, to be a finger wag to the audience for uh, like having the audacity to, I don't even know, play the game, I guess. And so I, uh, I played this game after I played Last of Us 2. And uh, I don't know, Caleb, how much you followed the discourse around Last of Us 2, but um, I don't think it should come as a surprise that gamers can be toxic. uh, And like the whole Abbey body discourse in Last of Us 2, for example, was really just kind of gross. And I can understand the uh, why a publisher or a developer, probably a developer, right, would want to hold a mirror up to their audience and say, don't be like that. But this game was like a weird finger wag because everything it introduced story-wise that wasn't in the original that could have been interesting, it then takes back and it does it in such a way, like you said, Caleb, it's very pretentious and it it almost gives the sense of like, oh, we'd love to talk more about this, but you won't let us. Like the parts that stand out to me specifically are, like we said, Barrett's death. And also there's a part where under the sector 
or which one gets the plate dropped on? Is that six? Uh, sector seven gets the plate, and then there's yeah. like a lab underneath it. That's yes, where exactly. you're going. That's what right? I was going to talk about. Yeah, the party discovers a lab under there where it's like Full Metal Alchemist style experiments on humans, and before they can even get to the bottom of it, the ghosts push them out. And there's really they never go back to that. I think you you could you know if you want to make your own little head cannon, maybe that's why Shinra was more inclined to drop the plate on that sector because now that lab will never be found. But stuff like that, I'm like, that's really interesting. And it's like, you're introducing it and then telling me, oh, we can't tell you about it, though, because uh, you won't let us. And there is a way, I I'm a sucker for, like, alternate timelines or a multiverse or whatever, which we'll, we'll get to this, but it's, it seems like that's kind of what they're setting up with this game. And there's a way to do that that isn't pretentious and like like this, whatever this was. Like, they could have, I don't know, introduced like a trickster character, right? That is kind of removed from space and time that heckles Cloud in the party whenever they do a thing that's different and he doesn't like it. Like, there you go. That one's free. Have it. I mean, th there's even like speculation that that is what Sephiroth is doing this time around with all the flashbacks and um, I guess flash sides. I don't really know if they're all flashbacks, but just all those like cutaways to Sephiroth being that menacing villain. Yeah, let's get into um, let's get into the ending and let's talk about Sephiroth but, then. But 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 real quick, um, sure. I I I think it would also be interesting. Like, imagine the lens uh, or the perspective of someone who's never played a Final Fantasy game at all, and they come in and they experience this game for their first, and all of these things happen. Like, I want to go down into that lab. Oh, why didn't this guy die? You know why? What are these? <laughs> What are these things and why are they doing this? And then when you get to that explanation at the end, you, you, you aren't really given that much as a new viewer and as a returning viewer. It's kind of like a slap in the face as far as if you were on in the camp of, I hope that whatever they change, they, you know, they stick to it. They do a good job writing it. Um, I'm curious to see how it unfolds on its own. Uh, separate from the original um because like it, the people that are going to complain on the internet about any of those changes i don't care whatever that discourse can stay in its uh basement corner of the internet wherever it lives um but the 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 reality of a remake staying the exact same eh? who cares it, it's a, it's a new game it can be what it is um and then the fact that square enix really just wouldn't let it be what it is so I imagine like a uh, a completely uh, unexperienced player coming into this fold and and seeing these things and being like, what the hell is this? Yeah, actually, the one time I wanted to mention this because uh, it it makes me laugh every time I think about it. I can understand them uh, for the sake of remaking this game, just assuming everyone has at least a working knowledge of Final Fantasy VII, especially because Final Fantasy VII is available on all major platforms to this day. But the part that really got me was after the plate falls, there is one cutaway shot to Kate Sith. And he punches the ground. And if you've never played like, the, the original... This? Who is this like, person? Who is this cat? Also, it's before Red 13 is introduced, so they haven't even established that animals sometimes talk. So instinctively, instinctively, I think of Kate Sith as a big white blob. Because yes. that's my vague memory of him as a character. So I, I genuinely had to think for a moment... What, who or what was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's like just this weird anime cat with like boxing gloves. He looks like a Sonic character now in HD, and he just punches the ground, and then he doesn't say anything. They never talk about him, and then the game is just 
<laughs> like I, I was like, you can't expect me to keep playing the game. Okay. You need to explain yourself here. <laughs> There's a certain level where I think like they, they did an excellent job with uh, further developing these characters, further developing this setting, creating a fun and engaging uh, gameplay system. But then um, they, they still forgot to do their homework in regard to, okay, it's like putting your inside jokes in a film that you wrote. Not everybody's going to get it. So yeah. th- those moments are like really weird. And, and I, that's another great example for like, okay, what are the people who've never experienced this before in their lives going to think? Do you think the reaction would have been different had it been advertised as truthfully advertised as the next compilation game rather than a colloquial remake? I mean, it could be. Uh, and and the comp the compilation of Final Fantasy VII kind of has this weird like it, it's just every time that they've wanted to you know either make a game in that setting again or you know dare I say do another cash grab in that setting. Well, I think the I think the remake in remake is actually pretty literal. Now that you've we've beaten the game and we know exactly what it is they're doing, it, they're literally remaking Final Fantasy VII. Uh, which I'm fine with, but let, let's get into the ending because we're we're starting to run a little long. Okay. Um, essentially, the ending is uh, basically th- this game they they put Sephiroth in it kind of uh, bullishly because it's it's Final Fantasy VII and you need to have Sephiroth. And essentially, the entire final chapter of the game is a boss rush mode where uh, these Dementors become giant now and they're literally gods of fate. And Sephiroth is telling you all this, and you have to fight them off. And there's like an implication that they are manifestations of Cloud and co from other timelines or whatever because if you scan them with your stagger materia it says like this guy fights with a sword to protect his timeline um and it just totally shatters the stakes for any potential uh like like the next part like how how am i expected to only care about uh sephiroth and the destruction of the planet which is a thing to care about for sure when you have introduced this even bigger existential threat of like oh i don't actually have free will (laughs) cool are, are they coming back, though? Because... I don't know. I mean, what he suggested was that now that the Arbiters are gone, they can do whatever they want. That's the thing that has been confusing to me, like, throughout the entirety of the the post-Final Fantasy VII remake uh, period. This, this new because, world? Because, like, I, yeah, like, I don't know if the Whispers will show up again or if the Arbiters of Fate will show up again. I don't know if it even mattered yeah and uh, uh yeah it's a good point like either way it, it it feels like it's a 40 hour excuse for them to say we're going to change final fantasy 7 when like you said mike they could have just done that from the jump they yeah. could have had like the entire first level be you know near beat for beat final fantasy 7 and then throw a curveball uh and then you know okay the game's different now um, yeah and i think that every time that they did that um you know it, it was fairly successful i mean like um, and that's also where the whole whisper arbiter of fate thing really breaks down in its logic because like they don't show up through so many mm-hmm. things that are now different. And now for some of those things, they are there. So it's a very, you know, the arbiters of fate are rather arbitrary. Yes, um, you're right. And, and so it, it, I, I think my, my stance is really, they should just own up to what they want to do with the story because i mean in the end it is theirs it it, it, they were the people that created the game in 97 so you know as the creators they they have 
all the agency to go back and do whatever they want for the remake. It is still theirs in, in that respect. Um, it, it is it is all also still ours in the sense that I can go back and play the original Final Fantasy VII at my leisure anytime, whenever, and nothing about it is tarnished. Yeah. Um, but like we still have access to all that. We can still enjoy it the way it was, you know, back then, now, whenever. Um, so like going into part two of the remake, not knowing really what to expect. Um, not even having like a solid cliffhanger. I think you know having that that chase after Sephiroth and the existential threat of the planet dying because of him and Shinra um, is a great stopping point. Like we said, like get to the town of Calm and have this kind of quick flashback on where Cloud came from, um, even if it's a little different from the original game. Uh, but having that to set up this part too and give us a very clear goal and direction for the beginning of part two would be, I think, so much more powerful and, and have new players and old players alike that much more jazzed to pick up part two the day it comes out as opposed to waiting for reviews to hear if it's good or not, uh, yeah. to hear if it does anything weird or strange or not that might be uncouth, um, and, and jump straight into it. Once again you got to have something at the end there to make it feel like a complete $60 game rather than an episode like it was originally conceived. I, sure. I, I, I agree with that, but it is a little challenging to do so, I think, in this. Well, it just doesn't explain why they did it this way. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's such a bizarre choice. There's actually a part in the middle of that boss rush where, like, Sephiroth says, like, hey, Cloud, come with me. Like, let's defy fate together. And if I had any agency, I would have been like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, at this point, I was so, like, just, like, I don't know if disillusioned is the word or what, but I was like, yeah, let's go kill God or whatever, Sephiroth, fine. Uh, what, how, why am I supposed to care about any of this? Disillusioned would probably be a good way to put it. And, and I, I agree, like, um, it would feel like it f would fall a little flat if you get to the end of the highway and there's nothing there. You know, just... Again, that's how the original game was. There was really nothing there. There was a really nice moment in the plot for all these characters to discuss with each other and figure out what we're going to do next. Kind of, you know, organize all of our our goals and how to get there and set a path. Um, yeah. So I think I think that the game did an okay job of having in like an end boss, like a nice, you know big fight to tie everything up even though it was pretty much kind of ripped out of kingdom hearts um they could have probably done it a little bit differently I, I imagine like maybe if they were just like cloud is having the hallucination and thinks he's fighting sephiroth at the end of the highway but then like oh maybe he just like bonked his head or something you know and then they make their path forward for the next episode yeah um it, it is kind of challenging to take an episodic uh, 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 presentation and and shoehorn that like final encounter in in places where it wasn't originally. Um, because I imagine like the the highway chase could, but maybe wouldn't do a good job of being that grand finale. I just feel like they missed the mark with what they did at, end up doing, and at the end of that, it it left an even more unclear picture of where our 
ragtag team of anti-heroes is going and what they're doing next, which, I mean, for what is essentially a sequel to a remake, I mean, a sequel, an episode two, a part two, whatever, however you want to phrase it, I think they missed a great opportunity to have us know exactly where they're going without any context from the original game, especially if they're setting up this nature that they can change things at will. I agree with all that. Let's go to the sauce. What we're going to do is we're going to take the sweet and sour and we're going to combine it, give the game a final verdict, uh, and then if you'd recommend anyone play it. So for Final Fantasy VII Remake, let's give it a scale of 1 to 10 Koopos. Why don't you take us away, Caleb, and then Mike, you follow, and I'll bring it up, uh, bring up the rear just as succinctly as we can, kind of describe your thoughts on the experience uh, and give it a score. Okay. Well, it is a pile of some can't miss moments. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say right out that I would recommend it just for those moments. It also has some slogs here and there. And, uh, the combat overall, at least during the main campaign, is near perfect. It shows a little bit of imperfections if you decide to go beyond to hard mode, etc. But that's entirely up to you. So it's if 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 you're looking for a forty hour experience, I would say yes, definitely worthwhile. If you really want to explore beyond that, uh, that's your call. You may enjoy it. You may not. If you're not that big a fan of the original Final Fantasy VII like myself, then you will probably get more out of it than if you are. But if you are a fan of the original, there are a lot of nuances that and improvements that you will appreciate. So I'm just going to roll with 8 out of 10 Kupos and say play it for Wall Market, as I said before. Sure. All right, Excellent. Mike. I, I think uh, I would absolutely recommend this game um, with without the context of the original because it is like a, a, it is a great roller coaster ride um, from start to finish. There's a lot of wonderful moments. The characters are so fun to get to know and to play as. The gameplay is really fun, and um, that, uh, out of everything in this part one remake, I'm looking forward to more of that. Um, so I think that regardless of its flaws, there's some pacing issues. Sometimes it feels padded. Sometimes the plot feels a little weird and I'm not quite sure where it's going to go or how it all works. But in the end, I think I still had a great time with it. Uh, I, I imagine other people would also enjoy it, whether they are uh, diehard fans of the original game or if they've never played a Final Fantasy in their lives. I think I'd give it a score of a 7 out of 10, uh, mostly because some of that pacing... 7 out of 10 what? Sorry, 7 out of 10 what, exactly? <clears throat> 7 out of 10 Kupos. Okay, uh, sorry, I just didn't know. Kupo. Uh, Kupo. Uh, 7 out of 10 Kupos, uh, because it does have some pacing issues. Um, there are some moments where it feels a little bit like a chore, but once you get through those, uh, all of those chores have something fun right before them and right after them. So uh, that's really the only thing that kind of brings it down in my book. But what game really doesn't have that these days, right? So 
Seven out of ten Koopos. Uh, okay. Um, I agree with most of what you guys just said, but I am going to disagree slightly. I think um, I would only recommend this game if you've played Final Fantasy VII. Um, and I, I guess I would recommend it just to be able to know the discourse of this game because it does make some kind of insane choices. Uh, but I don't think I can overstate how much those last two chapters really soured the game on me. Um, I really did not like Hojo's Lab, and I just did not care about the Arbiters of Fate thing by the end. I was just ready to be done. Um, I do agree. Wall Market is absolutely worthwhile. Very good. Uh, and like I said, I thought the scaling the Shinra building was great too. Um, but I don't think I'll ever revisit this game. I don't know if I'll play part two. I will probably see how you guys like it <laughs> and see if I want to play it then. But the gameplay is good. It it feels fun to play. So if action RPGs are your thing and you ever found this thing cheap and you weren't and, and you just kind of knew that the story is gonna uh, I guess not really respect your time, right? I don't want to sound too uh, harsh, but that seems to be the best way to put it. Uh, I think, sure, then fine, it's worth it. But if you... Um, I, I, there's a lot of other games I would play before this one. So I think I'd give it six and a half out of ten Koopos. We, we got a, a trend downward. That's a good sign, isn't it? Yeah, I'm honestly a little surprised, Mike. I thought, uh, I thought you would be harder on it than I was. Which is... It is kind of surprising. I think I think there is a little bit like... There is a lot of good in it, and I think that shines forward. All the all the things that are kind of bad um, are easy to discuss, mm -hmm. but then when like really looking back and thinking about the game, um, all of the wonderful moments flood straight to the front, um, which is probably the healthy outlook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then also like on on the subject of remakes too, or just in games in general. Um, the you know the idea that this has to be absolutely perfect to the T and uh, remake the original perfectly as it was in '97. Uh, I, I mean, I know that you're not expecting that, but people out there that might be expecting that as uh, an assessment of this game and how good it is, kind of a bad assessment, I think. You know, it, it is. It has been 23 years. It's a totally different game, um, and that's kind of why I went with people who maybe have never played Final Fantasy VII or any Final Fantasy games might find enjoyment in it. Um, the one thing I do, we haven't really d discussed about, and I know we're about to wrap up, but um, looking ahead at part two of this remake, um, I kind of wish we had a little bit more clear uh, goals for our characters going into part two. And um, more for the real-life aspect of it, I'm really hopeful that this remake doesn't turn into a 10-part remake series because if we have a $600 game by the end of uh, by the end of it that would be really bad I think. Yeah. Um I think we're looking at six parts. Yeah, I'll I'll wait for the definitive edition on PlayStation 7. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> actually you're right Caleb because I was going to say I think maybe part of the reason there is no clear goal is cuz one I think they are taking it episode by episode. So if one of these does not sell well, that's it. The whole thing's in the can. Uh, two, it's Square Enix, so we will get it in our 40s to be... I think that's being pretty liberal. I think that's pretty fair, too. And the move to wait for the definitive edition may not be a bad move uh, as well because, like, who knows how many parts it'll be. Um, yes, yeah. Any guess is a good guess, but if they all cost $60, then regardless of how good the experience is, I can imagine 
well, maybe now seventy dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I can imagine that regardless of the experience, that uh, those sales might waver because if you have, uh, you know, several parts each costing seventy dollars, it's not the Telltale Games model. Um, it, it's not you know some kind of guarantee that I get to see this story through to the end and get my money's worth. Um, sure. Who knows? where you start and end on this journey. And and I, I think you made a good point, Roman. They might just make as many episodes as they can churn out with all new content never before from the original uh, to keep the money train rolling. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I hope that's not the case um, because to be able to play a remake of this story all the way through would be wonderful. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I hope it doesn't cost $600 by the time it's done. Well, Caleb, thanks so much for coming on, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, do yeah. you have anything you want to plug or where people can find you? All I got to say is thanks for valuing my input. And here's to surprising many more mechanics in the future. Yes, I actually, yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, you know what? I was going to make a really stupid joke about going to like Jiffy Lou, but I, whatever. <laughs> I, I already shilled Super <laughs> Patch Wolf. So yeah. um, that's that's my plug for today. Okay, cool. Well, thanks a lot, man. And uh, you know what? If if uh, there's anyone that could convince me to play part two, it's it's probably you guys. So uh, if if uh, assuming you know the heat death of the universe hasn't happened by the time the second part of this thing comes out, maybe we can do this again. Be happy to. I can't wait to review Final Fantasy VII remake part two, remake part three, remake part four, five, six, seven, and eight. Final Fantasy VII reunion. Final yeah. Fantasy VII. Rejoin Final Fantasy <laughs> 7, 8, 9, and 10 remake part 4 and 5 compilation 8. Over 2. <laughs> you know, it seems weird that Valve has a hard time counting the 3, but Square Enix, they're just so jacked up on counting. The high <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for joining and thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you on the next one.